All right, Acquired LPs, we are here today with a very, very, very special guest, Roniel Rumberg, the co-founder and CEO of Audius. We're super excited to have this conversation because I feel like until recently, but for the past, I don't know, 6, 12 months, well, plus, we'll hear the whole story. Every time we talked about Solana or we talked about crypto projects in general, there was like one canonical example of like the real world non-DeFi use case for crypto. And it was Audius. Now, of course, there are many more, but like you guys were the first. We're so excited to dive in with you. So welcome, Roniel. Awesome to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm stoked to be here too. This is going to be a really fun chat. Oh, it's going to be so fun. So probably most people listening will at least have heard of Audius and and a lot, I think, will know what you are. And hopefully many will even have used it as millions of people have. Maybe to start, can you just give us the overview? What is Audius? At the highest level, Audius is a digital streaming service that connects fans directly with artists and exclusive new music. We really see that direct piece of that explanation being our key differentiator between Audius and and a lot of the music listening and and distribution services that you might know uh, today. The way that Audius achieves that is by being fully decentralized. So there's a network of node operators that are actually hosting all the content, hosting all the metadata, all this other stuff on on the network, basically running the network. And artists and fans have have come together to run this as a community good effect. Effectively. It's been a crazy ride since we got going, but it feels like things are things are only just beginning now. And when did you start the company? The project got started in early 2018. So coming up on about four years now. It actually took two years to get the first version of the product or, or nearly two years to get the first version of the product out publicly. So that launched in late 2019. Early 2018. The idea of building a consumer application, let alone a music streaming application, decentralized, you know, on a blockchain, on, you guys use a combination of Ethereum and and Solana, uh, use both. Nobody was thinking this. You were taking crazy pills. (laughs) Why did you believe firmly enough in sort of uh, certainly Ethereum winter that this was an interesting thing to pursue? The idea for Audius actually first came for my co-founder Forrest and I in 2015 or so. The idea really was a community-owned and community-operated version of SoundCloud. That was, I mean, it was very directly inspired from from seeing, I think, some of SoundCloud's missteps and issues around that time. We really felt that if there were a way for users to be in control of the decisions made around how you know, how the platform works, right? How discovery works, how curation works, how all of these things work. A product could have staying power around user-generated audio that no one ever seemed to get previously, right? Going all the way back to like MySpace was really the first place for for user-generated audio. So that was the initial like genesis of of the idea. I was working at Kleiner Perkins at at the time. Uh, Me and a couple of others started this little seed practice Edge? Is that what it was called? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. KPCB Edge. Oh, man. I remember that happening. 
Yeah, that was me and and a couple of good friends of of mine from school, uh, Anjane and Ruby. Uh, so Anjane was the one that led up Edge and and organized the effort internally. And and he and I were good friends in school, and he knew I was very into like. I guess, like distributed systems and decentralized tech stuff. So he was like, hey, you know, like, why don't you come help us look at this area and hang out and have a good time? And I was like, great, yeah. But anyway, with respect to Audius, we concluded at that time that tech didn't exist to do what we wanted to do. We actually came up with this like very, very convoluted design for Audius that would work with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has this OP return field in a transaction that you can write arbitrary data into. This would have been in those days when, or maybe slightly after when people were trying to create Bitcoin 2.0, like right as Ethereum was getting started and there was like the the colored coin guys, all the projects in Israel that were like, oh, we can build on top of the Bitcoin blockchain and create these other, you know, fields like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we didn't make it very far with that, right? We, I think we quickly realized that like this was not going to work, right? And I'm glad that we did because in, in retrospect, it definitely wouldn't have at that time. But so I spent a few more years at Kleiner. My co-founder, Forrest, ended up starting a company that kind of worked on like data center asset tracking management problems. So they would track like usage of, of licenses across, you know, natural transition from that to, you know, the music <laughs> streaming industry. I could see some similar problems to solve there. Yeah, we all give him a lot of shit for that. It's, it's pretty <laughs> funny. I think he was like so, so scarred by enterprise software sales. That was like heavy, like on-prem software enterprise sales, not not like SaaS, right? He was just like, never, never again. So obviously what, what we did with Audius couldn't have been more the polar opposite in, in terms of that. But he sold that company in mid-2017 to a company called Avi Networks that later got bought by VMware. I decided to leave Kleiner around that time because I kind of wanted to get back to building stuff. It was a little bit tough at a a firm like that to spend a lot of time on what I thought were the most interesting things in in crypto, which were these token-y things. Now things are a lot easier in terms of how venture firms can get exposure to that asset class. But back then, it was really not clear from like a legal perspective, from the like limited partner agreement perspective, how you could uh, engage with that asset class. And it was basically Union Square Ventures that was like dipping their toe in. And no, all other VCs were like, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I think not. A16Z was the only other firm spending a ton of time in in the space from the like traditional guard of of firms. And then you know there were a lot of new folks, of course, like Blockchain Capital, Pantera, and others. So there were there were kind of the crypto native folks spending time there. Anyway, yeah, to kind of close out the thought, uh, we revisited this idea in late 2017. Obviously, Ethereum and IPFS had both launched by that time, and we thought were the two enablers that could help us do this and said, hey, let's let's try and make a prototype around this and see if, see if we can make something work. And we did. And then some folks got excited about like helping to, to lead a seed in the project. So that happened and everything kind of went from there, I guess. Yeah. 
who were your early believers that you're willing to to sort of shout out here? Yeah, it was uh, Nico Bonazzos at General Catalyst and Adam Goldberg, who was at Lightspeed at, at the time, but now now founded a, a dedicated crypto fund called Standard Crypto. So it was the two of them. They co-led that seed. They were the ones that believed when to what you mentioned earlier, like... Yeah, I mean, everyone thought we were dumb, dumb as a rock to try to do this, right? It was like, what were the known things about crypto in 2017? No one uses it, is number one. Nothing works yet, is is number two. Floyd Merriweather is doing like ICO scams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was known about music businesses at that time is that none of them make money. That was like the, like Spotify was the one uh, exception to that, but there was such a long trail of, of destruction around music technology that no one wanted to touch that either. So you're right at the intersection of two just beautiful trends that investors are champing at the bit to go in and invest in. <laughs> yep, exactly right. So we were like, you know, just just kryptonite, right? Like everyone thought we were stupid. We've used the phrase seed several times on this show once to describe the seed practice with KPCB Edge. And then again, for Audius, can you describe what seed meant in what you were doing at Kleiner Perkins and what seed meant when you raised a seed round for Audius? Uh, just to, because now it's totally different. <laughs> it even became different, I think, during that time. So when I started at Kleiner Perkins in, in 2015, seed meant like one to two million dollars at like an eight to 10 cap, say for some other kind of thing like that, rarely priced. That was pretty cookie cutter, right? And KPCB Edge, that group was writing checks of 100 to 200K at a time. So so we were not, you know, leading seeds. We were just a small participant in them. Ronnie and I were both at Stanford when Snapchat was happening. And if I remember right, didn't Lightspeed do Snapchat's seed round of with a $600,000 total round, I think at a 6 million cap. That's right. Note. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah, crazy. It's like, this is totally not what this episode is about, but it's so hard not to take it here every time because the world has just changed so much. I mean, even in the last like 12 months, but certainly in the last four years. Oh, it, it certainly has. And it's just it, it's just kept changing in the face of I remember when I was at Kleiner, people were like, Oh, my God, you know, a $10 million cap on a seed like this is nonsense. Like this is crazy. You know, how are we ever going to make money uh, investing at these crazy prices? And it's like, no, nah, no, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna do fine. Don't worry. Before we get into some of the like implementation of how Audius is implemented using blockchain technologies, can you talk a little bit about the why of decentralization in music? I think it's helpful to start from what the economics of the music industry look like today. And at, at the very highest level, music generates about $42 billion of revenue a year. That's everything from recorded music to concerts to merch to like, you know, you name it, everything end to end. And is that growing, shrinking or flat? That's growing. Actually, all of those categories are, are growing in terms of the dollar amount of revenue, but only 12% of that makes it to artists which is insane. So the other 88% are going to distributors, platforms, middlemen, like these uh, so-called rights societies that collect revenue on behalf of songwriters and other groups, and then sort of sit on it and take a cut and do whatever and maybe pay it out like one to two to three years later. There's just so much like kind of structural 
inefficiency and and complexity there. The bigger thing to take note of with that is that the economics of music more generally look about the same as they did like 30, 40 years ago, right? When making a record back then was really expensive. If you think about you had to have a factory to produce CDs or, you know, LPs or tapes or whatever the medium of of choice at that time was, you needed a physical distribution network to get that out to retail stores. You needed distribution deals in place with like the Tower Records and the Best Buys and, you know, the Amoeba Musics of the world, like the everyone from the independents all the way to like the big box kind of music retailers. That was really expensive, right? And, and what it also meant was that there could only be maybe a couple hundred artists in a year that could get distribution. Well, plus there was the whole radio dynamic, right? Of like, you had to have the relationships to get the radio airtime to drive demand like it was all so cloistered yeah and and same thing there there's a fixed amount of radio airtime in the same way there's a fixed amount of retail shelf space of course the internet completely upended that right we have an infinite shelf and an infinite amount of distribution capability right when the marginal cost of reproducing music is now zero there's so much that and distributing it yes is close yeah. to zero it's all close to zero right there's so much more niche music that can have a place in the world can find fans that otherwise you know if you were an artist with 10,000 fans like you you had no chance in the old music industry but today if you could get 10,000 people to pay you 10 bucks a month like you're doing pretty damn good so music despite being kind of the earliest unintentionally to the digital oh, man. the age, first killer app of the internet right Napster yeah. Despite unintentionally being earliest there, I think we'll be one of the last to finish the process of of digital transformation. And streaming, if you look at the economic breakdown there, kind of looks the same as, uh, you know, all those same parties that used to exist in physical record distribution still exist today and still capture like roughly a similar amount of value to what they did back then. They don't add value to the chain, right? I'm so glad you brought this up. Over time, given an infinite time scale, if you're not adding value, you can't capture any more value. But these things take a while to shake out. And so I'm curious, like, you just made a phenomenal argument for why something like Spotify or Apple Music should exist. Algorithmic recommendations, infinite, you know, musical shelf space, uh, zero cost to reproduce the music, zero cost to distribute the music. What you end up with is the streaming services we have today at very large scale. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on like, why are there all these parties who are involved? And how do they manage to still capture value in this new ecosystem? So there are a lot of structural and historical reasons there that I I think they're able to maintain their position in the market, everything from like legislation across the world to pre-existing longstanding deals that that say the major labels had made with given distributor companies and, and things like this. The groups that have power in in music haven't changed. And that's why the the economics of the industry haven't really changed either, because they're kind of controlled by folks that have a vested interest, obviously, in maintaining their current position. So when you look at folks like Apple Music and Spotify, I think they did the best that they could with a shitty hand. They had to get these groups happy because they were not direct upload or direct engagement tools, right? Like you actually still 
can't upload music as an individual directly to to those things. You have to go through a third party distributor, and there are a lot of a lot of reasons for for that. But which is insane. What if you needed a third party distributor to upload to YouTube or a podcast or like, you know, that's that's right. Although I think there's a place for it in, in the market too, right? In that, you know, this is David and Ben, something we talked about last time we spoke, but like Netflix and, and YouTube can coexist serving different segments of the market. And so too, I think can user generated audio exist uh, in in a different sphere from kind of like this studio quality professional for the user that knows what they want to to listen to and like just wants to look it up and, and find it. I think Spotify is great for for that user, right? And and that's why we don't really see ourselves as as competing with that. You want, you know, Fleetwood Mac or you want Notorious B.I.G. All that is owned by the labels. You got to go through the labels to get that, right? Yes, that's exactly right. You know, that comes with all the various baggage associated with it. But I think that the sea change that's coming is that the labels are a lot smarter than than people like to give them credit for. And I, I think they actually do add a lot more value than than people like to give them credit for. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter this is something i would like dying to ask you so i'm going to put you in sort of the exact opposite position as most people usually put you in which is you are a record label like imagine you are one of the the big i don't know if it's five four or five record labels 
I'm an emerging artist. Can you pitch me on the value proposition of me signing with you versus giving you the finger and saying, I'm going it alone? If I'm the record label, my pitch is I'm the most effective like marketing and brand building machine that exists in in the music industry. And it's kind of a venture type of bet, right? In the same way that as a as a founder, if you if you raise a seed round, like you know, going back to our earlier thing, and then your thing doesn't work out, if you sell your company for like a million bucks or whatever, you don't you don't make any money, right? That all goes to to your backers. It's the same kind of dynamic in music. If you're if you want to be the next Drake or Katy Perry, that's the way you do it. That's the only way to do it. But that one size fits all model doesn't work for everyone. If I were in in the shoes of the label, that's the pitch I, I would make to folks is like, look, if you if you're willing to to roll the dice on like the five to ten percent chance that you can become a superstar if we work together, we are the best place to do that. And we have a business model that can underwrite losing 95% of those bets because we make our money back on the 5% that do pay off. I think a lot of the sour grapes around how label deals are, are done, it would almost be akin to like a, a founder being mad that like their early stage investors got such a good deal or, or something, right? When they go public. So like, oh, like, you know, they they only spent like 600K on their Snapchat equity and now that's worth like a billion dollars or whatever. People made a deal in a place at a time and like the way that the world works, you honor deals that you make, you honor your word. So it's incumbent upon artists to to ask themselves that question, right? Do you... Do you want a, a 95% chance of failure or do you want like a, a meaningful shot at like having a great, you know, living and, and great career, but like a, a control your own destiny kind of yes. path. Yeah. yeah. With the labels, right? Like it's easy from the outside to just look at this, especially like all of us in tech and be like, wow, this industry is so backwards and messed up. But you said about, you know, you want to be Drake or Katy Perry. So the labels business models, they're built on creating Drake's and Katy Perry's, right? So like if you have aspirations to be the next Drake, you should do that. If your aspiration is to be like a great folk singer, you know, there might be a better path. Either something with a small TAM or with slow growth, like to contextualize it into startup terms, like something a bootstrapper would be interested in versus a, a venture scale founder CEO. That's the key point I'd uh, definitely drive home, I, I think, is that the label's approach is is kind of one size fits all. It's suited to a world where there are 100 artists that matter every year, right? And that's just not the way that today's world is. But it does still work for, you know, some certain caliber class of artist. But the thing that's also really interesting, the label model is very much kind of predicated on high cost content. So the model there for for everyone listening's understanding is the label will advance money to an artist and then the artist actually uses that money to produce an album, produce content and then uh, releases it and then 
the label recoups the money that they advanced the artist kind of like a almost like a book deal basically or it is the same as a book advance like you the label recoups against uh revenue and then revenue gets split according to your contract after the recouping is is done the vast majority of these deals never recoup the same way that like the vast majority of book deals never recoup probably or the vast majority of startup deals never clear the preference hurdle yes. yeah Here's where things get interesting, though. Like a lot of folks don't realize that producing a typical like pop or, or rock song, it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars per song. There's an audio engineer that needs to be there in a physical studio space sitting with you and recording. It takes weeks and weeks of the band sitting together and re-recording parts over and over again. Then there's a producer that has to like merge and organize it. Um, that is so different and requires a different amount of capital from like a dance musician who can sit on their laptop in a room for a few weeks and produce a piece of content like, you know, on on their own. I think hip hop actually we see similar dynamics where beat makers are separate from, you know, like rappers and folks like that. You know, someone can, same as a dance producer, like sit in their room and, and make beats. A rapper can, you know, go listen to and hear cool beats and then say, Oh, I'm gonna, you know, like rap something over this. Like this is dope. I'm gonna I'm gonna use it. So the cost of producing those types of content is just so much lower that uh, artists in those areas tend not to need the advance to be able to get content out the door. Whereas if you're a rock band, like a typical guitarist, bassist, drummer, singer, like, you know, producing folk music, that's really expensive content to make well. You kind of need the advance to to be able to do something like that. Whereas I think where, it, where you see behaviorally, like what a lot of hip hop and, and dance folks will do with the advances they get from the label is not make music with <laughs> it, right? Like, cause you can, you can spend that money on whatever you want. So, right. I mean, cl classically in the book deals, the writers use it for six months to like live yes. while they're writing the book. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle expense. Yeah. So when you look at everything in the music industry, economics wise, you can walk through a very logical explanation for how things came to be that way in the same way that I just did for why labels have advances and then have to recoup it and then have the revenue sharing model that they do, right? It all it all kind of makes sense, right? But artists and, and creators are, are free people. And, and I think the role and opportunity for platforms like Audius to, to play in future is to give folks an alternative to that path, right? To say, hey, here's a way you can own the rights to your music and and get it out to the world. It works very well for uh, content that's cheaper to produce. You don't need the advance from from the label. You don't need all of that machinery, all of that everything, right? When I first checked out Audius, you know, there's a lot of great like EDM, dance music, some hip hop, uh, but it's exactly that type of thing that it's like stuff you could make on your laptop. And the cool thing is laptops have some unbelievable software at this point to be able to produce things where you're like, wait, one person did that in their bedroom is mind blowing. Yeah. The cost of producing content going to zero, I think, is actually the really the enabling trend behind, you know, the proliferation of, of great music and, and great content that, you know, anyone in their bedroom can make something today that sounds indistinguishable from what uh, was made by like a major label in, in a studio context, which is really remarkable, right? Uh, video is not is not like that, obviously, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, well, this is great to steer us back toward Audius. I want to ask you a question, but then also give you a minute to tell us about the scale that Audius is at today. I think people will probably so far think, oh, this is nice. Like, this sounds really good, but I don't think we've had you explain the like serious scale. Like, this is a presence in the world. So I want to ask my question, but then first open with that, please. How does decentralization help this? Like, obviously, you know, someone could do everything you're talking about on AWS, where there's a company that serves as the middleman that lets you upload your music directly, lets fans stream. So why decentralization? Yeah, it's it's about distributing ownership and control of the system. And it's about the trust that that comes with that. So Artist communities have been burned so many times by products in history that they're quite wary of, you know, investing a lot of time, energy, effort into some new platform for it to go away, you know, a couple of years later, or their account to be taken away, or their fans to to be taken away, or or whatever whatever it may be. And there's this great example. I'll, I'll say it so you don't have to, but you you know, at the top of the show, you, you mentioned SoundCloud. Like to my mind, that's such like the the perfect cautionary tale for an artist here. Like it was this great hope of like, Hey, the YouTube for music, like we're doing like everything we've been talking about. It's here. It's happening. It's getting momentum. And then it, it stopped for lots of complicated reasons, but yeah, for artists that heavily invested in that, that like must've been crushing. <laughs> like It was, I mean, it, it truly was because so many folks ability to get booked for, uh, tours, which ultimately is how most artists actually make, make their money is from touring was dependent upon their engagement numbers on SoundCloud and, and elsewhere. So if they invest a lot of time into SoundCloud as a platform and then their engagement numbers start falling off a cliff because users aren't going there anymore for some algorithm change or, you know, we introduced a new feature where we highlight people that are paying us or something like that. So what decentralization does here is it removes any company or set of individuals from being in a position to make decisions like that, that undermine the both the integrity of the platform, but the ability for users to continue to get the same value out of it that they have been previously. And I think that also has has helped us grow to where we are today. So Audius serves about 6 million people on the listener side every month, and over 100,000 artists have, have uploaded stuff today. It all kind of comes back to that trust aspect and that trust dynamic that people feel they don't need to trust us to to use this. They actually like earn the ability to control this by contributing content, by contributing value back to it. There are some interesting dynamics there where the network directly incentivizing and uh, distributing control of itself to the people who are making it valuable. Um, so both incentivizing that value creation and spreading control of itself out across the community. That's turned out to be this very powerful dynamic, right? Because uh, uh, artists are being told, hey, if you can bring your fan base here, like this network will pay you in ownership to do that. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What's the primary mechanism by which I gain governance over the future product development of Audius. Well, actually, one thing real quick before that, I think so. Six million monthly users, just for the record's sake, I think that makes you the most used crypto app in the world. 
We think so. Uh, <laughs> it's not entirely clear. Brave Browser is a little bit bigger than us in terms of their top line monthly user numbers, but it's not a decentralized uh, uh, application necessarily in, in how it operates. So you're right, David. We should not have let that just slip. Yeah, by. I think we we, we <laughs> got crazy. Like... <laughs> Congratulations, Renil. Thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, so I I believe we are the largest uh, decentralized application in existence by user numbers. For comparison's sake, um, MetaMask I think just crossed uh, 10 million monthlies, and that I think is a good proxy for what is all of crypto in terms of like the crypto native crypto usage. For us as a single product to be at, at 6 million has been has been really cool to see. So our user base is not crypto native in, in the majority of cases. Um, and I think that's how we were able to kind of get here, right? When you use Audius, it looks and feels like any other music listening experience and music player product, right? Yeah, I signed up and I kept waiting for like, okay, where's the part where I need like uh, to either hook up my cloud wallet or my like, you know, bearer asset wallet that I have. Oh, weird. Nope. This this just feels like a web app. Like there's no mention of crypto anywhere. Huh. Okay. And so maybe this is a good segue to, to that previous question before I so rudely uh, <laughs> did not acknowledge what a ludicrous scale you're at of like, how is this a crypto app and how does governance accrue? In the uh, Audius experience that you were using when you signed up, you actually have a wallet now without knowing it that the Audius app generated and, and now manages for you. It's one that that you as, as the user control and, and custody, um, there's a somewhat complicated explanation around that that I, I can get into if interesting. But long story short, you have a wallet. Your wallet was actually, you know, on your behalf, signing transactions and submitting them on chain to create your account to uh, uh, follow the the initial set of people you followed to repost and engage with content. All of that's actually uh, triggering these actions on your behalf behind the scenes, and your browser is actually talking directly to uh, these community operated nodes on on the network. So. When you go to audius.co, you know, you're, you're getting this like client side app bundle. But after that, your client side app is, is able to do all of this on, on your behalf, basically talking directly to the network, which is pretty neat. So, you know, the majority of our users have no idea there's any decentralization, crypto, anything there, right? But they're getting the benefits and the value props that exist around crypto, despite not knowing that, which is pretty cool. So like, even, you know, if you look at all of our public marketing materials and everything else, we talk about all the benefits that this model provides, right? You get unfettered and complete access to your relationships with fans. You get all the data associated with those interactions, including the ability to like, you know, target things to subsections of your audience and, and things like that. You get that kind of uh, control over how content can be unlocked by whom and under what conditions. Um, so all of these sort of benefits that, you know, none of those things I just described would have been possible uh, without the Audius product being fully decentralized, but users don't need to know how they're possible, right? It, it would be like if... Um, don't sell implementation details, sell yes. the benefits. Yeah, it, it would be like saying, you know, you should use my Facebook competitor because it's built on Postgres and instead <laughs> of MySQL. And it's like, who gives a shit, right? Like if it, does, <laughs> uh, if it does something new and interesting that matters to a group of people, like... 
you should use Snapchat because the photos disappear, not because like the what they chose for a database. Like, yeah, yeah, and and I think so much of the Web three community today, it's just I mean we're just so so early in terms of how the benefits of this are communicated to users and even like what the benefits are. I think people aren't like, you know, kind of honest with themselves, you know, around what the benefits of of a lot of these things are with respect to decentralization. And I think we're going to see a reckoning that happens because of that, right? In the same way that in the in the late 90s, like everything was on the web, regardless of whether it needed to be on the web at that time or or not. A lot of things were just let's do X that already happens in the real world and put it on the web. We're seeing the same thing now, right? Like let's do X that happens uh, in, in web two land and put it on a blockchain and then maybe it'll somehow be better. So let's take an example. Let's say some product manager in the future at Audius wants to introduce a feature that makes it so that for an artist to reach the fans who currently follow them, they have to pay Audius a bunch of money to do that. How does decentralization and sort of governance being decentralized over the product prevent that from happening? The way that Audius, kind of the incentive model around Audius works, it it all ties back into this Audius token that sits in the center. That has three uh, functions. It secures the network. So the people who run those nodes actually put up a, a bond or a stake of those Audius tokens to be able to run their node. And if their node misbehaves or, or does something wrong, they actually can get penalized against that bond that they put up. Um, so it provides this level of economic security. The token that is provides this level of economic security around how how the network runs. The token also grants access to certain types of distribution features. Um, so from the artist side, if you stake a sufficient number of those tokens, you can get uh, different abilities within within the network. And then the third function is it, it, it maps directly to governance power within the ecosystem. So when the Audius network officially launched, which was uh, October 23rd, 2020, um, from that moment onward, our company was incapable of making any changes to the code that powers any of, of Audius, right? Anything from like the way that content uploads work to the way that, um, you know, search and, and discovery works, all of those things were basically like, at that time, sort of handed over to the community to say, hey, um, you know, we tried to make some logical, uh, sensible choices for how things could work up front, but like you're in control of how this works going forward. Um, so actually to make changes to those things, you, you have to make a governance proposal, convince the community that there's the change is worth making and then vote it into, uh, into place. So even, you know, routine like bug fix updates and, and stuff that our team will help to put out. We, uh, you know, summarize and, and explain the list of, of, uh, bug fixes and say, Hey, you know, these all seem like good things to do. Like, if you agree, like, please vote in favor of this. And uh, yeah, so so we actually aren't capable, I think, of of making some of those poor decisions that many other platforms have have made previously when they reached a certain level of scale, like pulling the rug out from under their API, for example, or yeah, all, all these things. And this assumes basically that those node operators or the validators, they're as idealistic as you sort of set out to be. It sort of requires that this decentralized web of people who are voting whether or not they want to take the change, 
they have to have this sort of same set of principles and ideals upon which you founded the company, or I guess they could have an economic incentive not to ruin a good thing. They are one of kind of many participants on the on the governance side, but actually like a node operator doesn't get to vote with all the tokens that are delegated to them on the staking side. They're only able to vote with any direct stake they they may have put up. So they're actually a very small minority of, of the total voting share and voting base right now. Actually, yeah, anyone can vote with their tokens on on these sorts of changes and outcomes, but that shifts the focus of your question but doesn't doesn't change the nature of it in that there are still some interesting incentive issues around that right like i think the biggest risk that governance structures like this um run is that it's it's kind of like a, a rich get richer kind of model right in that the people who control it today will vote to like retrench their own power over time and make themselves more powerful over time. There's, I think, some work for our community to do to, to kind of, you know, iterate forward towards a, a model that, you know, like is, is sort of the, the most perfect. So the network right now is, is minting about 70 million tokens on an annual basis and it's distributing those to the folks that are creating the most value around the ecosystem defined by like driving engagement, other things. So like the intent there is is basically to like forcibly distribute uh, control and, and ownership among a very broad set of folks who are, you know, in proportion to the amount of value they are creating today. There's sort of two aspects to, at least as the way I think about decentralized applications and, and systems and uh, <laughs> Raniel, feel free to correct me if I'm thinking about things wrong, but there's the carrot and the stick. Governance is the stick, but economics are the carrot, right? How are tokens distributed? And my hypothesis is that like the carrot can oftentimes be the better incentivizing factor for behavior of like you're an artist or you're a node validator or whoever, like, you know, you're generating value for the system. Great. You get tokens you also get governance as a core, but like if the tokens, you know, A, they have value today. And if they appreciate more then you own the network and like you see the value there. I love that carrot and stick analogy in that I, I think it's absolutely on, on point. So governance is, it's both meant to improve and push the protocol forward, but it's also meant to punish those who are, are misbehaving within the ecosystem. I think we're on the cusp of like the one of the larger kind of uh, conflicts to play out there over the coming months, which is around botting and abuse. So there are a lot of folks in um, in the ecosystem now getting concerned about like people running, you know, like tools to manipulate the the way, you know, how many plays their thing has and all this other stuff, right? So there are a number of features going that I, I know folks in the community have been working on to reduce those issues, right? There are ways that you can detect uh, behavior, right, that looks not human. The question is, you know, how will uh, the existing power base of governance respond to uh, a situation like that, right? This problem is still very early, so it's not like it's it's you know significantly impacted the distribution of governance power, but it's a, it brings up this very interesting question, which is what if the very people in control aren't incentivized to like you know punish themselves or to like fix the problem? So yeah, whereas the economic incentive structure, I guess they go kind of hand in hand, right? Like the 
you know, your ability to earn the carrot has to be protected by some ability to enforce uh, uh, good behavior. The rules behavior. of the game, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, because people will abuse, you know, these these things, right? Especially if, if there's some monetary value ascribed to what they're able to earn in the form of these tokens and, and things. There's some uh, stuff to, to be cognizant of there. So, so how do people earn tokens today? There are a number of kind of incentive programs in place. Like if you upload a track that crosses a, a threshold of, of listening or engagement on it, if you curate a playlist that ends up being one of the, the top playlists, um, there's like a recurring set of rewards that are distributed on a weekly basis that, you know, the top X number of, of folks in each of these categories, including actually like uh, API integrations. So there are a number of folks that have built on and around the Audius ecosystem. A lot of folks don't realize this, but the majority of listening on Audius is no longer driven by our core app, the one that you use at audius.co. It's actually by third-party folks that have built like these amazing, cool applications that drive listening in different ways. Everything from uh, there's this music racing game where like you have to kind of steer your car around and through obstacles that are in sync with the beat of the music that you're listening to. <laughs> That's awesome. And they use, uh, they use the Audius catalog to help back that to, uh, you know, more, more typical like alternative music player experiences. So for example, the Audius app that our company put out, the mobile app, is a React Native app that's like not super great. Uh, candidly, we were we we're a small team, right? We didn't have any native mobile engineers on the team. Um, so there were some folks in the community that were like, "Hey, you know, we can do better than this." <laughs> uh, so so they built a, a great. Um, there's there's a couple of great like native iOS apps now that uh, that search against. It's like the Alien Blue example in Reddit land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the Reddit app itself was garbage for so long, right? No offense intended to them. It was just like not a focus, clearly, right? In the same way that for us, it, it wasn't a, a focus for a while because the majority of our, our engagement is still on, on desktop web, actually. Also, probably uh, in no small part because, our, you know, the majority of our growth has happened during COVID. There were 150,000 people listening to uh, Audius on a monthly basis this time last year, and there's 6 million Oh my wow. God. Today. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. All of that happened in a COVID-native world, right? There had to be some weeks, like in the last year, where you're looking at your growth chart going, are we the fastest growing company of all time? <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know about that. Uh, we're, we're four years old now, right, as, as a company. If you're getting from 150K to 5 million in a year, I assume there's some like several hundred percent growth weeks in there. Maybe not. No, no weeks like that. Um, we have had like 150% months before. But yeah, our, our growth was actually much more like steady than, than you might think in that like it's been, you know, 50 to 70% month over month. And, and then, you know, now it's, it's down to more like 35 to 40% month over month because we're growing off of a much, much larger base I mean, that's today. That's still freaking but, great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking through my comment, like, wow, reverse engineering compounding is hard. Like trying to think through like, what actually would those be? <laughs> yeah, because if you think of, if you run the math back on like, what is, uh, uh, you know, 70% month over month growth for 12 months, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big it's a number. Big number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, compounding really, uh, 
really gets you a lot quicker than you think. But to be fair, we definitely did have, there were some moments where things just went like crazy. I mean, the week that this TikTok integration went live like a month ago or, or so, I think we added a, nearly a million users in like uh, a week and a half or, or so um, afterwards, <laughs> which was pretty cool to to see. We were That's like, awesome. oh, that was like you know, 10 times as many users as, as we had after a year of, of running, we added in like a week. <laughs> uh, yeah, so those things are fun. Yeah. This gets to a bit of a technical question that I've been wondering about for all companies like Audius. And when I say companies like Audius, I recognize that that's not necessarily a big category yet. But for companies that are creating a Web2 front end, or perhaps an API to create a set of Web 2 front ends to a Web 3 product. How does that work? Like all the blockchain stuff is decentralized, but like I go to audius.co and that routes through DNS, presumably to like a centralized AWS hosted or something like that web server. How does that work in order to make the client side stuff as decentralized as it, as it needs to be? Yeah. So I, I think the way that clients decentralize is actually kind of, you know, exactly what we were just talking about, like this sort of API ecosystem, right? Our client was always meant to be a reference implementation, but not the kind of primary interface. Um, and our, our client's completely open source. So like lots of people have forked it and done fun things. That was actually like how uh, I think the first dark mode of Audius happened. Because <laughs> uh, that was one of those things that like, you know, another one of those things that our team never got around to doing. So someone in the community was like, well, I'll just do it and it'll be cool. I think they just made like another style sheet that you could like load against the the same uh, uh, web page. But they did it by taking, you know, the existing styles from the open source code and playing around with them. So there actually comes a time where, you know, the core first party product, you know, stops being like hosted by our company and, and hosted exclusively by the community. But even today, the majority of listening is happening not through through our own product. So I think this is one of the biggest kind of frontiers around decentralized tech and decentralized products, because I, I think a lot of folks are, are uh, saying, you know, oh, well, the smart contracts are decentralized. So the thing is decentralized, even though, you know, like 99.9% .9 of people use it all through a single website controlled by a single group of people that, yeah. Right. So that's kind of where I'm going with this is like, okay, cool. Let's say you give up the strategic market position of having all the traffic, the front end, to all the traffic. And you say audius.co is, it's no longer the biggest or, or the best, whatever. And so your backend's all still decentralized on the blockchain, but... Let's say someone makes like a really sick front end and then they gain like 90% of all traffic sort of goes through them. Well, can't they just turn around to all the validators and everyone with tokens and say like, look, I control the traffic. I want to add this feature. I'm either going to kind of go around the blockchain-based backend and I'm just going to introduce this feature in a centralized way with my client or I'm going to force you all to take some change because, look, I just have so much power in this ecosystem. That gets super interesting. There are uh, certainly things like that that could happen in the future, right? In that this is the the will of the community is, is what governs this and uh, people will find interesting ways. The thing that has always made me feel like we would be resilient to these things over time, and again, like I'm, I'm speculating, so this has never happened, is that... 
all of the content and interactions around the content, all the data driven, uh, you know, uh, generated through that and, and aggregated around that lives in the network. It's very hard to build a network effect around a front end when, you know, they're, I guess, for a front end to abuse that position because they don't have defensibility from people using other other front ends, right? Exactly what you're getting at is is one of the big reasons why like Spotify or sorry, SoundCloud and Twitter and like so many other social products would like rip away their API after a while because like they don't want other people to be able to like. I think there's like a really, really powerful thing here that is a unique thing to Web3 and ways of doing things like Audius, which is like you don't have to have that Twitter, the SoundCloud, like business model, like the way the token economics work. It's the underlying database, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that where the value is. And like that just enables so many, like, I love when you, the example of like audience being used in video games, like, could you imagine like going and just licensing music from, you know, via Spotify or Apple music or whatever to go use in a video game? Like, no, you got to go negotiate all those rights and whatnot. But like, you can just be this decentralized clearinghouse where like all that matters is streams of the tracks. The artists get <laughs> value for that because they create like as long as their play counts are going up, they're getting rewarded with tokens, right? Like and it doesn't matter where it's happening. And like you can just like spread out decentralized to, to like everything. That's exactly right. And and Ben, I think that's where we get our defensibility to to what you were describing. I think value accrues at the network level here, not at kind of the level of the interface. But I think what remains to be seen, like I think where things are going to be really fascinating are where, you know, as inter- there are third-party interfaces that that gain uh, large amounts of of traction, what's their business model become, right? We've started to see at least here, uh, uh, some things from folks like they're thinking about having ads, for example, in their front end, things like this. But again, there's that like, there's a fine line between if you go too far with that, you're going to push users to other things, right? It'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, if, if and when there are others that control the network from the interface perspective, like if they uh, try to misbehave with that positioning, but yeah, I think right now, you know, we've, we managed to create a great amount of diversity around how people are accessing the network. And I think to your, to your point, we're actively pulling back from our own interface alongside of that, you know, which is part of the reason that a majority of, of listening happens elsewhere. But I think there's a lot more, you know, the bigger reason is just that people come up with cool stuff that like we never would have come up with, right? How does a company launch entirely on a Web3 stack? Because there's all these components of an application and it's easy to just single out like the mobile front end or something that like just isn't web3 technologies and i'm always sort of wondering like at some point does every line of code that runs as a part of an application can that be decentralized yeah yeah that's a really great point and dns is is like the linchpin here that's like the big limiter so i think the only way to do that today would be to have a desktop app if you tell people, hey, you have to download this app and then you use the app to talk to the network, uh, or if they install like a Handshake or ENS Chrome extension that lets them resolve names on those networks. But I mean, 
that's the UX around that is like pretty garbage. So I, this feels like eventually the opportunity for brave, like once they have a blockchain based widely installed application that then can run full stack web three applications. I I agree with that. And actually MetaMask too, like I'm surprised that they haven't because they do have that Chrome extension install base, they could, you know, resolve names in the URL that like others uh, might not be able to. Uh, maybe they don't want the Chrome extension to grab that permission because it's scary. I don't know if you've ever seen that when you install a Chrome extension, it says this extension can read and modify like all data related to this website or, or whatever. They have to do that to be able to intercept like you know the the requests. But in the case of an ecosystem like Audius, having many many interfaces and and ways to interact with the network actually achieves the same kind of uh, decentralization. But I, I don't know that that serves itself well necessarily to a lot of other use cases. Music's different, right? Because there's like a lot of people want to build stuff with music. A lot I was of people just thinking wanna... that same thing. Music is so perfect. Like before we worked with Young Spielberg and Mike Taylor and got our awesome Who Got the Truth theme, which they just killed it. We worked directly with them to make that happen. God, we had so many headaches with music on Acquired and like, oh, it was such a pain. And I can just see like with Audius, if it's like all that matters are play counts and artists get rewarded based on play counts, all of that goes away, right? It's like everybody, every artist would be like, oh, I would love to have my songs in these podcasts or these video games or these movies or wherever because like it's all in the network. It all works. Yeah, and it, it all drives awareness of their content. This is you know, can be kind of my my hot take of the day, I guess. Like I, I think the way that the future of, of music is evolving, the thing that will capture value increasingly over time is the brand equity around the artist, not the asset of the content itself. Artist business models are are shifting towards that, right? Like they the average artist makes the vast majority of their money from touring, not from the average artist that's earning a living from from music, mind you, not the longer tail of creators, but they basically use content as marketing to source super fans who come to their shows and buy their merch. And the shows and the merch are are actually the business model, not not the music. I think as the labels have wrapped their heads around this, um, so we've seen the rise of these so-called 360 deals where labels are now capturing a percentage of all revenue generated around the artist's business, not just off of their music, but the incentives across the industry are starting to align towards like building value around the brand, not necessarily trying to, you know, build build royalty revenue around content, which is sort of the the older way, right? So if you treat content almost as a loss leader for these other businesses, it, it I think there's actually a lot more money to be made than $42 billion, right? If you think about the cultural impact that music has had, um, Kanye West releasing Donda a little while ago had already made probably about as much selling. I don't know if you guys saw this, this little speaker. Um, he made a speaker that had uh, uh, samples from the album. You could like push buttons on the speaker. He uh, made more money on that than he'd likely make off of a year of royalties from the album. It's just, it's just like a joke, right? To compare, like you can make a little speaker uh, and those speakers are like, they have this, this super marked up resale market on eBay and elsewhere, of course. Like it's become this whole like thing to clear like millions of, of dollars directly into your pocket from a tertiary 
experience like that, that like a very small number of, of uh, aggregate numbers of people are engaging with, it, it's just a very, we're in a very different world from monetization where scale is not necessarily um, the biggest driver of income for, for artists today. It's actually it, not even not necessarily, it's just, it's just not. Clearly, this thing was like manufactured at scale and is a super cheapo thing, and it was sold for two hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah, it was probably probably like twenty bucks at a factory in Shenzhen is like the bomb for for that, right? That, and uh, like... yeah, yeah. But his fans love it. They're clearly getting fulfillment and, and value out of being able to engage with Kanye in that way, and that's two hundred dollars per per one of those people going directly into his pocket. Like that's that's a, you know huge for for him. So yeah, it's wild. Two more big buckets that I want to cover. One is a technical topic, and then another one is like the current chapter of Audius's life involving your recent investment and, and working with artists. But first, on the technical topic, we have mentioned. Audius on the show before as a good example of something that works across multiple blockchains that takes advantage of the benefits that each one has to offer. And at least to my knowledge, those two are Ethereum and Solana. And can you talk about what you use each one of them for and what it's like to build a multi-chain application? Yeah, so there's actually a third one in in that mix, which is called POA Network. It's an Ethereum sidechain, but that's actually where we got started on POA network and then uh, the Audius token staking system governance launched on Ethereum. And then the stuff that's on POA network has been migrating to Solana because um, that's that's faster and you know, more secure and better. So that's how Audius was you know, decentralized from day one, but still had a, a decent UX. Uh, POA network has a, a block time of around five seconds. Uh, the fees were very low. So it was like, you know, pretty easy to, to kind of get going there. And that was like, you know, in, in, Early 2019 was like the first alpha of, of Audius. It was like seven, eight months after we got going. POA network was the only thing that, you know, like existed at that time, right? That was not Ethereum. So we've been, I guess, multi-blockchain for the whole like existence of, of Audius. But the key insight that we had that that doesn't apply to most other projects, but puts us in a really unique position is that because there's this off-chain node architecture in, in Audius. So there are these community-run nodes that host all the content, host all the metadata. As a uh, end user, when you upload something to the network, you're actually uploading it to one of those nodes. It's returning to you a pointer to that content, which you your client then writes on-chain. And that's what signifies, hey, my private key is signing the message saying, this is my content. I'm claiming this as, as mine. So that whole end-to-end workflow, like you have these references to content and to various things on-chain. So you get the security of the the on-chain structure and the kind of logical centralization, I would call it. Like there's one source of truth for what's all the content in Audius, who has the rights to update and modify it, and then how to, um, you know, who triggered the engagements around it. So every time you repost something, you like it, that actually is all hitting the chain as well. Um, anyway, the key insight we had tying back to, to how I started this thought was that these off-chain nodes can bridge information between various chains, right? A lot of the complexity that might come in a model like this 
is when, you know, the Ethereum stuff needs to know some information that is definitively known by the Solana stuff or the POA stuff. And can you just give a, an example of like, what would be a thing that's squarely in Ethereum land and something that's squarely in Solana land? How many tokens do you hold is is Ethereum land because the, the token is an ERC-20 token and it, it lives in Ethereum, whereas the stuff squarely in Solana land uh, uh, or a mix of POA and Solana land, I guess now are things like, you know, who who is this user? Uh, when did they make an account? Uh, things like that. So like there's an arbitrary... Ethereum address, right, that holds some number of tokens. That's all that the Ethereum stuff knows. But there's that arbitrary Ethereum address controls a given user account in POA network, let's say, right? So like that same address controls like different things in different places. Um, so the way we are able to grapple with that complexity from like the developer model perspective, um, there's this metadata indexing node that, uh, uh, so there are two types of nodes that people in our community run. There are content nodes that store content and then discovery nodes they're called that index and, and, you know, kind of allow for easy discovery of content. That indexing node actually indexes the data across all these networks and then provides a unified like API interface for looking it up. So you can search data across all these things and do so in a trustless and, and decentralized way because it is being run by uh, by our community. There's like a you know a staking slashing mechanic around ensuring that uh, those folks are operating those nodes properly. So there's a level of trust that you can build with with those things, but you effectively get this kind of like oracle structure, you know, indirectly by doing that, right? So if those nodes can now report that information back to other chains, say like, you know, this user has like 10 tokens right now, if that could be a signed message from the uh, uh, discovery node that can now get uh, delivered to another chain. And then, you know, if that signed message has a timestamp with it, with some, uh, uh, you know, decay rate on it, like the timestamp has to be say 30 seconds uh, or one minute old at maximum to be valid on the other chain. Sorry, that got very complicated and technical, but uh, having the off-chain nodes allows all this information information to get bridged and, and kind of reconciled in a sensible way. Without that, this would be really hard. Even popping up a level, let me just ask the devil's advocate question of like, couldn't you just build it all on Ethereum? Why or why not? Today, there are over 400,000 transactions per day being done on, on Solana, for example. If that were on Ethereum, Depends on the time of day and the things, but at least judging from like my recent uh, a lot of gas MetaMask fees. interactions, yeah, that's, you know, like potentially at a minimum, like four to $5 million a day at a maximum, you know, potentially like 20 to $30 million a day. It's just not like, it just would it's never so work. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, $4 million a day if the transactions are only 10 bucks each. And and I don't think that would be, uh, that would be the case. And I assume that like my like listening history is probably stored as a part of my account. So if I'm like liking a song and hitting like next, 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 if those were all rights to the Ethereum blockchain, uh, I imagine the whole thing would be cost prohibitive and, and you couldn't operate it. 
Yeah, it would be very cost prohibitive, but even all those things aren't rights to uh, uh, to Solana either or to anything else. That would blow up like uh, anything. It's when you actively engage with a track. So if you repost it, if you favorite it, if you make a playlist around it, those actions are all hitting uh, the chain. It's not like there's a, um, I guess, like, you know, the the level of like, data that you might get from a Google Analytics or, or something isn't um, isn't making it to chain. That is all actually getting stored locally on your browser. And we've been trying to figure out a way to allow folks to get better recommendations driven by that data without compromising their kind of user privacy. It's a bizarre thing, right? Because your browser knows what you've listened to and how long you listened to it and how you found it and and all these things. Um, The network knows some of that. The network does know if you completed listening to a track, for example, that gets recorded as one of those play counts, right? It gets super interesting to think about like the data models around this. As it is right now, there are already people building uh, recommendation systems on the Audius data set because all the data of who's favorited what and, and when they found it and you know all, all that is all public, right? So you can write a collaborative filter very easily on the Audius data set like anyone can because it's it's all just out there for for the uh, for the taking. Um, the data modeling around uh, decentralized, you know, consumer scale applications like this is just super, super different from uh, like a traditional product, right? If if we were a traditional consumer product uh, with six million users, we'd probably just have like one super giant gargantuan Postgres database and like probably nothing else, right? And it would be fine, you know. Uh, stick the content in S three have a Postgres database be done. There could be like one engineer building this and it would be like totally fine. To adopt a mental model here, it's like you're trying to have a really long view on the success of this product and ecosystem. And so because you sort of have an example, and again, I'll say it, not you, of something that didn't work eventually with SoundCloud and you know where the pitfalls are, you're sort of incurring a lot of costs, like massive taxes on the system from a development cost perspective, from a need for decentralization perspective, in order to be able to sort of complete the marathon. That's exactly exactly right. Um, I actually even think to to begin begin the marathon. I don't. I mean, there was no reason for people to use Audius without those value props up front. Just the ability to own the relationships with those fans, have some certainty around uh, the rules of the game being somewhat set in stone and not subject to like the random whims of of a company. Those things resonated with the right communities early on, and that's what got our network effect going. I think without that initial hook, like no one, no one would have ever uh, uh, come here. So talk to us about the artist communities that it's resonated with. And and you've been very modest, so feel free to flex a little bit. But like, who's on the platform? How do they use it? Do you have any fun stories? Oh, so many, so many fun stories. So our early bread and butter was dance. Um, that's that's kind of where my co-founder Forrest and I had, you know, some uh, at least like deep personal background, no professional background. But and I think also that community was one that was very much aligned with the early ethos of of SoundCloud, and that that um, you know it ended up really resonating with our our product and product direction. So people like Skrillex, Dead Mouse, Dylan Francis, Diplo. 
I'll use Audius um, on on a regular basis, which has been super, super, super cool. And that I think was, you know, to the stories, the the more surreal thing of of all of this. One of our earliest supporters on the artist side was uh, uh, Blau, the producer, and which a lot of people out there are right now are having the moment of, oh wait, it's not three Lau. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I was a fan of him like forever. And, you know, I remember he came and played a small show at, at Stanford in 2011. Actually, uh, you know, David, if you were, you weren't at Stanford quite yet then, but uh, it was at the full moon on the quad in 2011. Oh, I wow. think it was that was he he played that back then. And I was like, oh, he's dope. Man, and full moon on the quad was let it. They shut it down, right? I think I have no idea. They threatened to shut it down every year. And the whole thing was kind of gross. Like, I don't, I don't think anyone like any of the kind of. I never participated because Jenny and I were married even before <laughs> I started at GSP. But suffice I, to say. Yeah, I, I, I didn't either. I think the idea of that, like, uh, was just quite disgusting. I think this but. would have been like right after Blau left. Uh, he went to Wash U for college. Yeah, and I, I think he uh, he dropped out to pursue music full time. And yeah, this was probably right around right around then. Um, I mean, I went to uh, the show from from him at, at Stanford. And then like, you know, this was like four or five months after we started Audius. Uh, he was super into crypto. So we, we found an intro to him. And uh, yeah, it was like super cool to, uh, you know, be talking to this person who was like, oh my God, I love your music. Um, and then that happened again and again and again and again. And you get desensitized to it over time, I guess. But I still, you know, kind of have to fight back that like starstruck moment when we get on a call with someone who like, you know, I grew up listening to their music forever, right? It's uh, definitely a, a surreal like uh, kind of business or, or work to do, but started out very dance centric, dance heavy. Um, we've started to make a lot more inroads and have a lot more growth in hip hop more recently. I think for similar reasons, right? That community kind of like I mentioned earlier around the uh, costs of producing content and the grassroots kind of support around how folks come up and, and break out rather than, you know, artists being broken. That breaking an artist term just means like when they break out or when they get discovered, uh, uh, basically. But, um, you know, hip hop artists tend to break through their communities, not by like, you know, the, there's this term, the industry plant in, in music, right? Like there's no sort of like hip hop industry plants uh, uh, that have, you know, been been able to like be successful, right? It's uh, not like uh, sync here. <laughs> like Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't know the story of NSYNC. Maybe they, they certainly kind of feel like it, right? If you think about the level of like that prescribed like Both template in the backstreet definitely the backstreet boys right like they were they were architected like there's no way they weren't i don't know for sure so i i won't say uh, Th- there was another one that was literally on making the band that like they architected them in front of america on tv <laughs> that was maybe like o-town i feel like it but yeah, uh, right right in that yeah. boy band ilk. <laughs> okay well reniel on our closing topic would you be open to telling us about your recent fundraise and of course, like what you raised and who was involved and all that, but maybe mechanically, since it's uh, quite unique for companies in crypto. We just announced a uh, a small $5 million raise from a lot of folks in the broader music industry that 
that have been you know supportive and, and helpful to uh, the network over time. But um, this was a chance for them to have a little bit more skin in the game and, and a little bit more uh, access to to ownership. So there was a uh, kind of five million dollar raise put together with. It was a, a very long list of folks, but some of the highlights that that you all might know are like Katy Perry, Nas, Steve Aoki, the Chainsmokers uh, is a, this fund Mantis that they run. Yeah, Chainsmokers are investing in everything these days. It's, I mean, I, I mean that in a good way, you know, for you, but like <laughs> they're investing in non music tech. Like they are so sharp uh, on on kind of the the business side of of music and tech when you uh chat with them like they're great dudes and they're extremely sharp on how all of this works so it's it's been a, a real pleasure to get to have gotten to work with them they're another one that i was like i love their music for so long and it was it kind of definitely super wild to to talk to them so yeah great group of artists great group of kind of industry heavyweights uh, uh so some folks like um mark geiger uh who ran wme for for many years the Bandiers, uh, uh, Marty Bandier, who um, uh, ran Sony uh, Sony Music Group for for many years. Um, so there's a great yeah great set of folks from all different directions that were able to come together here. And yeah, we're we're super excited about it because I, I think it helps us with a lot of our upcoming work starting to serve the broader uh, the broader music industry and continuing to continue to grow and and do cool stuff. And I assume that they didn't buy shares in some Delaware C-Corp called Audius Inc., right? Yes. So they bought tokens. The way that this mechanically worked, actually, there was an SPV that an investor in our our uh, ecosystem formed, uh, a guy named Ken Seif at, at Blockchain. Oh, yeah. He, uh, oh, cool. You, yeah, he's you, awesome. you all know him. That's That's great. Ken's like quietly like the investor in like a bunch of really cool Web3 technologies. He he is. And I, I think that's how uh, he likes to be. He likes to be, um, you know, a little bit quieter and in, in, in the shadows. But he's been so instrumental in, in helping get Audius to, to where it is today. And this was another case where, you know, there's it's like kind of hard to hold by engage with tokens. He formed this uh, SPV and is administering it as as a favor to the ecosystem to help folks who like wouldn't otherwise be capable of uh, oh, that's the awesome. logistical uh, hurdles. Aren't of, ready to of, get on yeah. Uniswap and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a whole thing, right? So that SPV was able to um, kind of you know administer and, and manage or is able, sorry, to administer and manage the position on behalf of these folks. And yeah, it's been it's been it's been really cool. So. You're right. It, crypto projects doing fundraising is a very strange and, and odd kind of process given like the structure is just so different. How do you think about <laughs> this is going to sound weird about like money and resources and like, you know, like it's a really, really good question. There are kind of different parties or groups in in the audience ecosystem that uh you know, work on various things. So like our company, you know, receives grants from the Audius Foundation, as do others. The Audius Foundation is actually what controls this this treasury of of tokens. Um and it's And did the SPV purchase the tokens from the foundation? It did. 
Yeah. Okay. So the foundation's job is to kind of manage this treasury of, of tokens and make sure that it has enough cash, uh, like, you know, kind of dollar or other, uh, uh, you know, stable coin denominated cash or whatever, you know, the dollar is not the most stable thing in the world these days, but it's basically meant to insulate the ecosystem through ups and downs in, in value, like, you know, various macro events can, can affect crypto, right? So that treasury management function is, is really the foundation's role. And then it, it, you know, it's sort of, the job of companies like ours to go ask the foundation, like, hey, you know, we want to do X, Y, and Z. Like, do you want to fund us? Uh, and they can be like, no, or they can be like, yeah. And Is it one-to-one of token ownership, audio token ownership to governance of the foundation or... So the foundation's not uh, governed by token holder governance. So there's two separate treasuries, which gets complicated. There's actually like a community treasury that's on chain. There's a pot of of tokens that the community is able to vote and and allocate. Over time, actually, you know, I I believe the the foundation will shift control of of uh, its books into the community's hands. But I, I think for where where the project is at right now, uh, the foundation being able to be a little bit more agile is is uh, helpful. So, you know, the foundation is still able to conduct uh, uh, kind of, you know, real world uh, contracts and things of that nature that like, uh, you know, it's going to take some time before a DAO can, uh, <laughs> we need some more infrastructure built in all this, yeah. pay, like a legal invoice or, or whatever it may be. Right. We'll get there. I have faith. We'll get there. It's just going to take a lot of time. So, but yeah, so we think about money, I guess the same way as like any other early stage company would with the caveat that you don't get to make more, uh, tokens. That's like not a, thing, right? Like unless the community were to vote to make more uh, uh, tokens, there is a finite quantity that the uh, uh, foundation oversees. It needs to kind of, you know, manage that like an endowment more than it does like a evergreen uh, uh, source of, of potential funds. Um, I mean, not that like company equity is is evergreen and tokens aren't equity, right? They s- serve very different functions and, and behave very differently. But but in a traditional tech company or, or whatever, you can like make new shares, right? Like financings are dilutive. Uh, in token land, financings are not dilutive. So um, that gets very, very different, right? It just changes the calculus. Fascinating. Well, that seems like a great place to leave it. Ronil, where can listeners find you on the internet? How can they get involved? What should they go to? Definitely check out Audius. Um, it's A-U-D-I-U-S dot C-O is the, uh, the primary product that you can go engage with and discover cool content, listen to stuff. Twitter is where we uh, announce most interesting news and, and things. Um, so it's at Audius Project is, is the handle. Give us a follow. Check it out. For myself, I don't really do much uh, interesting outside of Audius. Uh, so I don't think uh, I have much interesting to say on the <laughs> internet outside of that. But uh, uh, you know, if you want to see lots of retweets of Audius content, you can go follow me on Twitter. So <laughs> it's at uh, Roniel R. Uh, R-O-N-E-I-L-R. We'll link to all that. I think you're probably selling yourself short. Awesome. Well, Raniel, thank you. Listeners, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thank you for having me.